Let's open up to the book of Psalms, chapter 110. And Lord willing, tonight we're going to go through a few uh, chapters together. Uh, Psalms uh, 110 is a really cool psalm in which, I don't know, what do you guys think? Is it okay to eavesdrop on someone else's conversation? What do you guys think about that? You're like, ah, oh, it depends, huh? The context uh, determines everything. It reminds me of a, a joke I heard recently. Uh, what's a, a Mexican's favorite kind of cheese? Cheese You guys knew that, huh? Cheese <laughs> You know, we like to listen and get the juicy, juicy, and get the, got the gossip sometimes. Um, it's interesting. Psalm 110 actually begins with David eavesdropping on a conversation that the father is having with the son. It's interesting. Look what we read here in, in verse 1, Psalm 110. It's a psalm of David, and this is what it says. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This psalm, and I'm sure you guys have heard this verse today uh, many times if you've, if you've been a Christian for a while. This is an amazing prophecy about Jesus, the coming Messiah. And here we see David, the writer of the psalm. Literally in the Hebrew language, he says, uh, Yahweh said to my Adonai, uh, the father said to the son, sit at my right hand. Sit right here, son, till I make your enemies your footstool. And so right now, uh, we're going to see when we, when we look at this psalm, it's amazing because it speaks of Jesus' ascension, his exaltation, his coronation, and even his identification. We're going to see that all in this one psalm. But that's where Jesus is right now. In case you're wondering, well, where's Jesus? And of course, we know he's omnipresent, but in a positional sense, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and in one sense, just waiting for all his enemies to be made his footstool. And so we have uh, the, the work uh, of coronation that will be coming uh, very soon. And then we're going to see all the enemies uh, consisting of the devil and all those who follow him. Every single one of his followers will be made into the footstool of Christ. And so as a, a footstool, you probably know it's a piece of furniture where you rest your feet on. But in the biblical context, it's usually used uh, for the king who's seated on the throne and he has a footstool. And that footstool is symbolic of the way that he has his enemies under his feet, uh, defeated in every sense of the word. You know, you remember that, uh, you guys might remember that when they did the archaeological uncoverings of King Tut's uh, footstool, they found it carved with all the characters of his enemies. Why? Because it would be symbolic of the fact that he's putting his feet over his enemy. And so, you know, this is what the father is saying to the son. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And a lot of you guys, you've been dealing with a lot of enemies. The enemy's coming against you in every different way imaginable, man, in the thoughts and situations and circumstances. And sometimes we get frustrated. But it's good to know that one day every single one of them will be defeated under the feet of of Jesus. You know, in Acts chapter 2, verse 34 through 35, this scripture is applied to the ascension of Christ, you know, how he ascended into heaven. And then in Hebrews chapter 113, this scripture, it speaks of the exaltation of Christ because he's there seated at the right hand of the Father. And then in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 13, 
It's the, the, the proof text of the coronation of Christ, how one day he will be crowned king. And then, um, and we're going to see later on, Jesus quotes uh, frequently this passage to tell them, who do you guys think David's, uh, uh, the Messiah is? He's not just the descendant of David, because he calls him Lord. Did you guys notice that here in this psalm? Uh, David's quoting uh, the passage, and he says, The Lord said to my Lord. So David calls him Lord, Jesus said, and if he calls him Lord, he can't just be a mere human descendant uh, of David. There's something more to this, and what we find is identification, and it shows us that Jesus is actually God. And so we're going to see, and as you guys go through your New Testament, you're going to find that this is probably the most quoted or alluded to passage in the entire Old Testament. Uh, some say 25 times you'll find it alluded to, you'll find it quoted frequently over and over and over again. And so I'll tell you what, that, you know, because those of you guys have been studying the Bible, you know, you know that when something's repeated over and over and over again, it means that this is very important. It's good for us to be studying this psalm. Kind of like when Jesus was on the cross and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting from Psalm 22, and as he's dying there for our sins on the cross, he's telling everybody, Hey, study Psalm 22. So now, as he's doing this, uh, you know, talking about David's, you know, saying, My Lord said to, the Lord said to my Lord, He's saying, hey, you guys, study Psalm 110 because it's one of the most important psalms in all the Bible. You know, we find it's quoted six times in the New Testament, alluded to 25 times. Three times it served as a basis for Jesus pointing to the people that the Messiah was much, much more than David's descendant. And so um, what, what we find is, is David's saying to us, don't lose heart. You know, don't lose heart. I, I know you look around and, and it's a crazy the things that we see going on in the world. You know, in, in mass ways, I mean, we see these shootings that are going on around the world, the, the political chaos, you know, the things going on in the, in the borders, all the drugs, all the craziness. And that's just, you know, all that out there. That doesn't even include, you know, my own world and the struggles that I have, and maybe you with your kids or family or job or finances or, you know, the physical things that we're going through, the mental, emotional anguish that we experience. And, you know, we, we look at this world and, and it's like, Lord, I, the outlook on the planet is craziness going on. But as we've heard many times, when the outlook is bleak, try the uplook. And what we see here is soon and very soon, Everything, all these enemies will be conquered by Christ. And, and even the Father will fight. And finally, after you know something we've wanted all along, there will be peace on planet Earth for all the people. You know, Psalm 110, in verse 1, the, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 2, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers. And so now is he's talking actually to Jesus. And Jesus is going to be the rod of his strength. And so the father makes the enemies his footstool. So the father's fighting. But Jesus is too. And we see that in Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus comes back on the white horse and he smites the earth with the rod that's in his mouth. 
But then you guys also know that we're coming with him, right? Jude says he's coming with ten thousands and ten thousands of his saints. And so when he refers to the volunteers right here, this is willing servants, willing soldiers in the day of his power. And the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. And so right here, it's pointing to Jesus coming back after the seven-year tribulation, the millennial kingdom, and beyond. You know, the volunteers include us, and uh, we're not, I'm not really sure how we're going to do it, you guys. Um, maybe we will swing swords. Uh, we're going to be there. We're going to be coming back with Christ. Because I was thinking about this. I'm not, I don't want to steer you wrong. I don't want to say, well, Jesus is going to do all the fighting. Maybe he will. Maybe he's just going to say the word and everyone's going to be defeated. But sometimes the Lord, did you notice that the way he fights, sometimes he uses us? You know, you're a, you're a vessel, you're a tool, you're a weapon. Maybe we're going to be swinging swords. I kind of hope so, you know. I don't know for sure. Um, I don't know how we're going to be clothed, but I do know we're going to be clothed in holiness, right? And it's kind of cool the way that it says right here that we're going to be here in beauty, in the beauty of holiness. And I like what one commentator said. They said, others will accompany the Messiah, willingly offering themselves to take part in his battle. But this will be no ordinary battle. This will be righteous judgment poured out on the wickedness. Hence, holiness is the required adornment. And that's how we'll be dressed. And so I look forward to that day when Christ is crowned as king. But, but what we find in this psalm that's so fascinating, and I think one of the reasons why God wants us to study this and to know this, is because not only is it a psalm about the office of a king, but it's also the, a psalm about the office of a priest. Because notice what we read next in verse 4. It says, The Lord has sworn and, and will not relent. He's not going to change his mind. This is what he says. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus is coming back as king. Any of you guys interested in that? Are you guys looking forward to that? You're like, well, I like my president. I know we all have these political, you know, opinions and things like that. And you're thinking about some other people. Who knows? Maybe one day God will raise up somebody really, really, really cool. But it's meant to me, I mean, we know everyone, there's no man that's going to bring, bring the peace that Jesus will bring, right? And so we look forward to that. But, but it wouldn't be any good if we just had this, like, kingdom without the salvation that we need. And what we find now is Jesus is, is not just, he's not just the king, he's also the priest. And, and this right here, verse 4, to be honest, man, this is what I would probably describe as one of the, the most random verses in the whole Bible, if I could say that. This is such a random verse. You know, I, I can't even visualize what David was thinking when he's writing right here, but this is why Peter says these guys, when they were writing the Old Testament, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I mean, here's David, he's writing, and then all of a sudden, the name Melchizedek comes to his mind, and he, and he says, you're a priest forever, uh, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, this guy, Melchizedek, um, he's only mentioned one other time in the Old Testament. Way back in the book of Genesis chapter 14, you have this mysterious man who is called the King of Salem, which means peace, by the way. Salem means peace. And, and he's also called the priest of the Lord Most High. And I thought it would be good maybe if you could turn there 
to Genesis chapter 14. And we'll read this story. And, and maybe you guys might remember some of the background to it, but, you know, Lot had been, uh, uh, I guess you could say, captured by the enemy. And so Abraham goes with a few hundred of his trained servants, and he goes, and he takes a step of faith, and he goes against five kings, and he, and he gets the victory, and he brings back Lot. And to me, I guess when you really look at it, you try to analyze it, I think what he's doing is he's expressing faith. That's the one thing about Abraham. It wasn't just, I believe, I raise my hand, I go forward in the altar call. No, it was a life that manifested faith. I believe that God will raise my son Isaac. I believe that God's going to lead me as I go to the promised land. He expressed his faith in the things that he did. And so here he is again expressing his faith. In, in God as he goes and he, and he you know, has this victory against these five kings. And when he comes back after the battle, look what happens, man. Jesus meets him. Look at, at verse 14. It says, Then Melchizedek, he's the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, bread and wine, what do you think of when you read the bread and the, and the cup, the bread and the wine? What do you think of? Communion. So here's this guy, you know, king of Salem, king of peace. Where does this guy come from? You know, and he brings out the bread, and he, and he brings out, you know, the wine, and, uh, and he was, it says, the priest of the God Most High. Where did that come from? Where does this priest come from? And he, and he blessed him, and, and he said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. And so Hebrews talks about the fact that this mysterious figure is at the very least a typology of Jesus. My personal opinion is this was Jesus. This was Jesus. We call it a Christophany or a theophany. He appeared to, to Abraham in the Old Testament. And, uh, and, and, he's, a, and he's a king of, of Salem, of Jerusalem. He's the, the priest of the Most High God. And, and, and what happens is that Hebrews talks about that. The greater blesses the lesser. So Jesus is greater than Abraham. And not only is it, is it apparent because, you know, Melchizedek blesses him, but also because Abraham paid tithes to him. And so here's Abraham, and kind of like I was talking about in Hebrews, the, you know, the priests now are, are paying ties to, to Melchizedek. Who is this guy? We don't know. Then we hear about him. He just zooms onto the scene. No genealogy, no beginning. Where'd this guy he, he comes? This man appears out of nowhere. And then, boom, he drops off the, 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 the face of the earth. You don't hear about him at all. It doesn't make any sense until now we go to Psalm 110, and, he, and, he, and there's this promise to Jesus, you are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And what we find is the Lord then says, it's about this guy that was there. And that's so cool when you read Psalm 110 and verse 4, that Jesus is now the, the priest. And what is a priest? A priest of one, is the one who, he's the one who is a mediator between us and God. You know, I, I know as Christians, how many of you are trying to live a better life? Just out of curiosity, you're trying to be more obedient? And some of you guys aren't. I'm going to pray for you. <laughs> but, you know, um, we still fail. We still fail. I'm not proud of it by any means. 
but I'm just so grateful to know that my salvation is not based on my behavior. It's based on the blood. I believe in Jesus, and I will believe in him until the day that I die. And so I know I'm going to heaven, not because I've earned my way, but because I have a priest who died on a cross for me. You know, the earthly priests, the Aaronic priesthood, if you look at the Old Covenant, you have the Levites who helped the priests. They were descendants of the tribe of Levi. But then you have the specific family, Aaron, and all his sons, the 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 eldest son would always then become the next high priest but they died it says in the book of hebrews and so boom when he dies you lose the priest this one never dies and what we find in the book of hebrews is that he finished the work and he is seated down kind of like we just read he sat down because he finished the work and all we're waiting now is for the enemies to be made his footstool and so Psalm 110 is so cool. He's the king of Salem. And I, and I just like that because Salem means peace. Uh, the Hebrew word uh, is kind of related to the word shalom. And uh, it, it talks about, you know, just peace, um, complete. It comes from that word in the Hebrew language. And I, I don't know, do you have that, that peace? If I can just ask you, how's life been? Has the enemy been tormenting you because you haven't been dotting every I and crossing every T? Has he been, you know, condemning you? Uh, like Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, Hey, if you're a Christian, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I, I came to give you peace, a perfect peace, because he's the king of peace. He's, he's our king, he's our priest. And so it's beautiful looking at Psalm uh, 110, um, and this is for those of you who, um, Hebrews talks about that, you're more mature in the faith. If you're not like tracking with me, you're like, I don't know, Melchizedek, that's a funny name, it doesn't make any sense to me. Hebrews talks about it because, you know, sometimes people don't understand because they're not mature. But when you start really getting into the word and you learn all these things, it's cool to, to just be able to have that in your heart. And what that peace does is it just changes your life. Hebrews 5, uh, verse 6 and 10. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20. And you read the whole chapter uh, 7 of the book of Hebrews, and you're going to learn a whole lot of Melchizedek. And so we find interesting in the Bible, because, you know, normally you don't have the kings and the priests mingling, but here you do. There's another prophecy in Zechariah 6, 12 through 13. I encourage you maybe write that verse down and read it later. Because it also is a prophecy regarding that the Messiah would also be uh, not just the king, but the priest. And so we read in Psalm 110 and verse 5, it says, The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. And so, uh, Revelation chapter 6, 15 through 17, it talks about how when Jesus comes, the kings of the earth are going to hide themselves in the caves, and they're going to say, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. You know, when you read the scriptures, it's interesting how it talks about in the last days, 
there's this prophecy and when you guys when you go to Israel with us you'll be able to see the whole valley of Armageddon the Bible says it's going to be filled with blood up to the horse's bridle four feet high four feet high as this all as all these nations of the earth they come against Christ and right here we read about it he he shall fill the places with dead bodies imagine all the blood all the death all the carnage because he will defeat, like I said, the devil and every single one that follows him. You know, we look at this and we see the great military victory at first glance. Again, like I said earlier, you might wonder who's doing the fi fighting. Is it the father or the son or us? And I think you know, when we read it, basically it's all three. And so uh, Psalm 110, an amazing psalm. And then Psalm 111 and 12, uh, those are both acrostic psalms, meaning that uh, in the Hebrew language, each of the 22 lines begins with a corresponding letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And so that would probably help them to memorize the psalm. And it would be like us having a, um, you know, a psalm with all the letters of the alphabet. First line starts with A, second one B, uh, third is C. And so that, that's what these next uh, couple of psalms are. Uh, most teachers believe that these two psalms, they kind of join together. They're like a pair. They both have 10 verses with 22 lines beginning with a successive letter. And in the original text, most of the lines contain uh, exactly three Hebrew words. And so uh, they both also begin with praise. Look at verse 1 of Psalm uh, 111. It says, Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. And so, praise the Lord. Does anyone know the Hebrew word that that is? You guys know? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Right? And so that's what he says right there. Hallelujah with my whole heart. Right? And not just uh, uh, like, like Saul with no heart or Solomon with half heart. David had a whole heart. When he, when he praised the Lord. That's why he was chosen as king. In the, in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, when they're looking for a king, you know, uh, Jez, uh, um, the, the prophet uh, Samuel is looking at all the different guys and he's thinking, well, surely it's this dude because he's big and he's buff and he's got to be king. And God says, no, not him. I've rejected him. And he goes on all the different sons until he comes to, you know, eventually the father calls in this little redhead guy named David and God says, that's the one. That's my king. You would have never seen it from the outside. No one would have ever figured it out. No other man would have selected this individual. But God chose him because God doesn't look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Right? And that's why in Acts 13.22, David is described as a man after God's own heart. And here's David. He's saying, I'm going to praise the Lord. And, and in the Hebrew, it's a vow. It's a vow. I determined I will praise the Lord. No matter what, I will praise the Lord. And when I do it, I'm not going to do it with, you know, no heart, half heart, whatever, 85%. No, I'm going to do this with all my heart. And I'm not just going to do it privately. I'm going to do this publicly. That's what he says right there. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright. And a lot of people believe that's in reference to maybe a smaller group of people you know, when you're with your friends, you know, maybe praising the Lord. But then, you know, in the public setting, in the congregation, it's kind of cool you know, how we do it, you know, before we do our, our study. 
he says, I'm going to go and I'm not going to be ashamed and I'm going to praise God. You know, it kind of reminds me when David was bringing in the ark. You guys remember how he did that? How he uh, was dancing, how he had the linen uh, cloth, uh, the linen garment. And linen is, uh, it was uh, given to the priest to wear so that they wouldn't sweat, right? And so it was the clothing provided for them. And uh, it was just so cool to see David there. And as they're bringing up the ark, do you guys remember what he was doing? He was whirling and he was praising God. I mean, the guy, you, you couldn't hold him down. And of course, we know his, uh, unfortunately, his, one of his uh, wives saw him and she despised him in his heart because the enemy hates worship. But, but it didn't stop David, right? Here he is and praising the Lord. He's not ashamed to do it publicly. And, and as we go through this psalm, we're going to see the reason for this particular praise emphasized here is the wonderful works of the Lord. Notice verse 2. It says, The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. And so oh, we're going to see, I, I, Lord, I, I'm going to praise you. I mean, with my whole heart, I, I'm going to do it publicly and the reason is because of your works and the things that you've done, you know. And we're going to see it mentioned five times in this psalm, verse 2, 3, 4, 6, and 7, the works of the Lord. And here we see something interesting, that the works of the Lord are studied by all who have pleasure in them. And so they're, they're, they're pondered by us, uh, those who delight in his deeds. The Hebrew word here it means to seek and investigate and inquire of the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Do you study the works of the Lord? Do you do that? Because I think it's really cool. And of course, we know that the, the, probably the best way to do that is by studying the Bible, right? And as you're studying the Bible, the works of the Lord, you know, it, it changes you. you the, the more you dig in. I'll tell you this. God delights in hiding things. You know, I don't know if you guys ever uh, hid eggs for your kids to find. Did you guys ever do that? I'm not saying you should because some will say, oh, that's a pagan practice, Manny. I can't believe you're encouraging them. But I just remember the whole thing, you know, and uh, hiding it and then the kids finding it. it it's kind of like that. Um, we call them, I think we call them Easter eggs, huh? It's hidden things. And the Lord says, this is not for the superficial saint. This is for those who delight in my works and as they're studying and they're digging in they find these things you know fb meyer said we must seek if we would find for it is god's pleasure to hide things and, and it could be i think primarily it's the bible but in all reality you know one of the things about chuck smith that he used to do is he would read um, um what do they call the encyclopedias he would just read the encyclopedias because he wanted to learn everything he wanted to learn about creation and so you seek and so you break out a, a telescope and you're and you're checking out the stars or you're learning about the things that god's made the works of the lord there or you know you have to look maybe sometimes through a microscope have you ever studied the cells and the way that we're so complex the way that we're made you know uh, you study these things out you know this morning it was kind of interesting i was kind of going through some things in my, in my own life and my own little pity parties you know guys we all have our, our struggles right every single day even pastors just in case you didn't know that 
we're very vulnerable. We, we fail, we fall, we struggle. We're, we're just men like, like you, right? Not justifying anything, but just saying, you know, you're just wondering about things sometimes. And I was looking out the window, and I was just tripping out because as I looked out the window, I, all of a sudden I saw a, a hummingbird just come right there. And I, don't, I, I guess he couldn't see me looking at him. But I was just, I was looking right at him. He's just kicking it right there. Just, you know, and I'm like, man, dude, this is amazing. This little hummingbird, he's like a helicopter right there, right? And, and I don't know, just to me, I'm like, wow, Lord. I mean, I don't know if you've studied the hummingbird and how fast their, their wings uh, uh, fly and their hearts beat and all that kind of stuff. And, and what ends up happening is as you're learning about the creation, what are you learning? You're learning about the creator. And when, when for me, when I learn about that, wow, he spoke all the stars into existence by the power of his word. And then you break out the Hubble telescope and you go look and you see how crazy huge these massive balls of fire are and how far away they are and how not one of them is missing and how God keeps them in their place. What does it do? It brings you to a point of worship. That God was nailed to a cross for me. And, and then you start looking at all the other works of the Lord, you know? I mean, the, the work of, of, of creation, uh, uh, when, when I think about the, that, I, I think it's so cool, but there's so much more. How about the work of the cross? Look at verse 3. His, his work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion you know there's a lot of works when it comes to god's works but out of all his works the one that we have to constantly keep in mind is the way that he's gracious to us and he's full of compassion you know when when you begin to see god's grace towards you i think that it kind of helps you show grace to others I always tell people, you know, don't abuse God's grace, but make sure you use God's grace. Because, you know, I don't care how good you are, you're going to fall. We're, we're going to blow it sometimes. And we need to be strong, 2 Timothy 2, 1 says, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I labored more abundantly than they all, but it wasn't me, it was the grace in me. And so the, the grace is so important to know. And, and when that cross, you know, comes into our life, his righteousness endures forever. Not my righteousness, because mine is his filthy rags, the Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6. But in his righteousness, it, it, it's, it endures forever. You know, life is hard. Life is hard, but remember, life is just a vapor. One day we'll be home in heaven. You know, we see this same uh, verse, pretty much the same thing in our next psalm in 112, verse 4. So we're going to get there again. But look at the works of the Lord in verse 5. He has given food to those who fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. And so... If I were to summarize it, because sometimes I like to put handles on things, and I know there's a lot more to it. Psalm 110 is about the, 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 the king 
and the priest, how Jesus, all the enemies are going to be made his footstool, and he has the office of king and priest. But then in this psalm, I think if I were to summarize it, I would say his words and his works. His words and his works. And there's a million directions you can go when it comes to his works. Even here he mentions the fact just the way he feeds us, you guys. The way you, did any of you eat today, just out of curiosity? When you ate, did you say thank you, Jesus, for this food? Why? Because he gives it to you, right? I mean, he, you know, supplied the food when there was a famine in the land. What does he do? Just crazy plan, how he raises up Joseph. And so that they don't starve to death, right? You read that in the scriptures. And then the manna that came down and fed them uh, six days a week. And then they would gather on the Sabbath for the next day in Exodus 17. Or the quail, you know, God gave them meat in Numbers chapter 11. When you look out throughout history, the way that God fed people. George Mueller didn't have anything. I know his kids, his kids would be right there. The, all the orphans, they'd be sitting down at their table. No food in front of them. And you know what he'd say? He'd say, let's pray. And they would pray and they would be like, well, there's no food. Why, why are we praying? He said, oh, God will provide. George Mueller, amazing man of faith. And what ends up happening is as they pray, then there's a knock on the door. And there's a guy, serious, true story. His bread wagon broke down. And so he says, hey, Mr. Mueller, would you like this bread here? I heard stories of Hudson Taylor. And I know you guys won't believe me because you don't, sometimes you guys, we, don't, we lack faith. But he was talking about how one time a rat a rat pushed a yam out of the hole in the wall to feed him. That's Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China. And so was it the rat who was feeding him or, or was it God? Remember Elijah was fed by who? The, the ravens. You know, you see the Lord, the way he feeds us, right? That's why part of the Lord's prayer is give us this day our, our daily bread. Today in my devotions, I was reading about how Jesus fed the 5,000. You know, and, and think about it, 5,000 men plus women and children. Isn't it cool the way that he feeds us? You know, and he makes the rain fall and the, and the grain grows and then the cows and the chickens and they all eat and we have food because God feeds us. You know, and he does it in such a beautiful way. Even today, I was normally on Thursdays, I don't really eat a lot. But, you know, today, it, it, because of VBS, my son was here. And so I, he was over there playing the piano. And I said, hey, you know, I might as well go to lunch with my son. And, and while we're going to lunch, because he said, okay, Dad, let's go to Subway. I'm all, Subway? Why do you want to go to Subway? Let's do something good. Let's go to Shakey's Buffet today, you know. <laughs> and I, I must have had like eight pieces of pizza and mojos and all that kind of stuff. Normally, I don't eat that. But every once in a while, he wants to bless you. Because it's not really, I don't know. It's the Lord and, and the fellowship that we have when we break bread. And so, uh, and what he's talking about here, the works of the Lord, not just the lasagna, but also the land in verse 5. Notice again, it says, He has given food to those who fear Him. He will ever be mindful of His covenant. And He has declared to His people the power of His works in giving them the heritage of the nations. And that's how God gave them the land that they have even today. And you know, they step in Jericho, the walls fall, and God gives them uh, the land. It's amazing. I don't know if you guys have ever even studied the Six Day War. Have you ever studied the Six Day War? I was, uh, I, I, a while back, I did research on it, and I was just blown away on the miraculous element of it. This is something that took place in 1967, and how God gave them the land 
You know, when God was, uh, it was amazing in 1948, Israel became a nation again, and that is against all odds. After close to 2,000 years, never have a people group regained their land the way that Israel did. But then uh, there was about 10 years of brutal peace. I mean, everything was going good. But then all of a sudden, you got four uh, nations, uh, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt, all these, uh, they were surrounded by their enemies. Uh, they were almost, they, the enemies had almost twice as many uh, troops and they had um, four times the amount of aircraft and uh, double the amount of tanks. And so when you, if you were to go back in history and kind of look up the news and even the news in Israel, everybody was bracing for them to be crushed. But when you, when you read the battle and you read the amazing things that happened, Israel defeated their, their enemies against all odds, not in years, but in six days. God gave them triple the amount of land they had had prior to this whole thing. What, what, is that Israel? No, what we find is it's God. And, and he's just declaring to us, like we've always talked about, Israel is a sign, Jerusalem is you know, a real detailed sign. And, and, and what we're reading right here is when you begin to study the works of the Lord, it's amazing the way that we walk away in worship. You know, verse 7, the, the works of his hand are our verity. And that's speaking of a true principle or belief, uh, especially one of fundamental importance. And, and justice, all his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and, and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. You know, in verse 7, the, the works of his hands. When you guys read that phrase, the works of his hands, what do you think of? What's the works of God's hands? And I guess in one sense, everything is, but the Bible uses that, that, that the word handiwork a couple of times, right? In Psalm 19, verse 1, the, the heavens are his handiwork. And so that's one thing I think of. But also in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, when God formed man. We're, we're not made out of some machine, and we're different than the other elements of creation in that he spoke them into existence, right? He, he created them uh, by the power of his word, but with us, he formed us with his hands. We're handmade. His handiwork, you know? And so... I was thinking about the, the handiwork, uh, again, everything that's made, you know, the heavens, first, second, and, and, and third heavens, us, uh, uh, that to me, your, your work. Have, uh, here's something that the Lord was kind of laying on my heart. Have you ever just stopped to look at your own life, at the works that God has done in your own life? You know, in the Old Testament, whenever God would show up and do some crazy type of miracle, you know what they would do? They would build an altar. You know, or they would set up kind of some kind of a stone, something um, that would remind them of the works that God was doing in their life. Sometimes I think that we're so busy, especially in Southern California, we're so busy. We're going through life, and God is doing these amazing, epic things, and we're not even taking note. We're his handiwork, not just the heavens. And uh, ultimately, were his handiwork and that his hands were nailed to a cross for us. 
And so you start looking at all these works, and I encourage you, don't let life go by so fast that you don't stop. When I was asked to give my testimony at Calvary Chapel Montebello, I'd done it before, like in Nepal and Mexico, different places, but for some reason, this last time, I just sat down, I said, okay, God, what have you done in my life? And he began to show me things in my life that I had never even realized before. You gotta do that. I encourage you, take time to see the work that God has done in your life and maybe write it down. And who knows, maybe one day on a Thursday, if you give me a hundred bucks, I'll let you guys share it. Now I'm just joking, you don't have to give me any money. It would be really cool to hear the stories that, that God is doing. Ephesians 2.10 says we are his workmanship, right? Philippians 1.6 said he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. We're his work, right? And so um, study that out. Verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. And so we're going to talk about the fear of the Lord. It's something we find a phrase 27 times in the Bible. Sometimes it's called the golden text of the wisdom movement. And, and look at the next uh, uh, chapter, verse 1, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. There it is again. Who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. So again, if you're trying to memory, maybe go away with, with something today, Psalm 110, remember, Jesus the king, Jesus our priest, our mediator between God and man. Psalm 111, study his works by studying his word. And just look at the works. And then this last psalm, if I could maybe give you a couple of things to hold on to, is how God will bless you when you fear the Lord, He'll bless your family, he'll bless your finances, and he'll defeat your foes. And we're going to see that in this psalm right here. Hallelujah. Why? Why are you praising the Lord? Because of the big time blessings. Verse 1, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. Right? And if you, and again, none of us are perfect, but we, we should aspire to be proper. We want to try to hit the mark. And so when, you're, when your heart is like that, you're going to be blessed, right? And, and notice the connection there with God's commandments. It reminds me of Psalm 84, 11. It says, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing. No good thing will be missing in your life when you just have a heart to obey. Because obedience brings blessings big time. And that healthy fear... What that does is it brings obedience and then that opens the floodgates to the family. You know, I, I know you guys want your family to be blessed. And, you're, you know, there's a lot of different things that we think about when it comes to that. But one of the best things that we can do is to fear the Lord that would bring obedience. And then we're going to see the floodgates to the blessings uh, of my family. And that's what he talks about there in verse 2. His descendants will be, be mighty on the earth. The generation of that, the upright will be blessed. Wealth and, and riches will come. And again, we're talking about, I think, not in the Old Testament, it was more along the lines of financial riches. In the New Testament, it's more along the lines of spiritual riches, right? But God will provide. Verse 4, unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. We talked about that. Anyone here grateful for the fact 
that God is gracious? Huh, big time, man. A good man, verse 5, deals graciously and tends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Uh, surely he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. So you're going to remember them a little longer. He, he will not be afraid of evil tidings. Now, does that mean that he's not going to ever get bad news? No, we all get bad news. We all hear those things maybe that we didn't want to hear. We, we're going to go through hard times, but you know what? We're not afraid of it. We're not afraid of it because we know now that God is going to work all things together for good. We're, we're not afraid of, of evil tidings or bad news. His heart, why, is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart, here, isn't this a beautiful place to be, is established. They're not like that roller coaster Christian who vacillates in their commitment and in their faith and in their trust. No, their heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. And like I said earlier, the fear of the Lord, blessing my family, blessing me even in financially, but really in, in the faith. And here we see that the foes get defeated. This guy right here, he does have uh, some finances in verse 9, he has dispersed abroad, generously given freely to the needy. He has given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. This individual will be rewarded, and the wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth. This is the wicked, and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. And how did it all begin? This psalm it began with praise about this guy who's going to be blessed because he fears the Lord. And that, that healthy fear of God is not uh, something, it's not a phobia, you know, where you're thinking God is uh, like this evil masher, you know, ready to get, to get you. I mean, he will give you a throngaso if you get out of line, right? He will do that. But it's primarily because it's the awesome God. He loves you so much. He's worthy of our reverence and awe. You know, there's this healthy fear that we walk away with, not an irrational fear. You know, I, I was reading uh, today about how Americans, they're, they're probably one of the most fearful people in all the world. You know, there's a high percentage of Americans who have what are called irrational fears. You know, some fears are, are okay, right? It's okay maybe to be afraid of uh, falling off the edge of the Grand Canyon when you're there, right? You're like, I better not go too close right there because that looks pretty far down, right? Um, some fears are there to organize. Some fears are there to energize. But irrational fears, what they do is they paralyze. And so we need to kind of find out how it all works, right? Um, I was looking at some of the most popular fears. Um, and let me ask you guys a question if you think it's a valid fear or not. Um, acrophobia is the fear of heights. Is that okay to have? Well, that one's kind of in the, in the middle, right? How about arachnophobia, the fear of spiders? Is that okay? Because some people, they freak out when they see spiders. Here's one, the most common fear uh, is glossophobia, the fear of public speaking. And believe it or not, that was me when I first started. You guys would have never, ever, ever came back if you heard me after the first time. But God just said, I'm forcing you to do it. Here's an uh, interesting one. Electrophobia. Electrophobia is the fear of chickens. That's a trippy fear, huh? Because any of you here, you, you see a chicken, you're like, ooh, I kind of 
any like that? Some people are, are afraid of chickens. Um, there's, this is an interesting one. Anth anthonophobia is the fear of flowers. There's, there's a lot of fears. I don't know. I guess people are wired differently. What we're talking about right here is irrational fears. Uh, let me ask you, do you think this one's a rational fear? Uh, cholrophobia is the fear of clowns. Any of you guys afraid of clowns? Kind of weird, huh? <laughs> Dentophobia, you guys know what that is? Fear of dentists, anyone here? <laughs> Here's an interesting one. Believe it or not, there's actually one, and there's a list of hundreds of them. Philo, philophobia. You know what that is? The fear of love. Imagine that. There are some people who are afraid of love. And that's why I trip out. You know, when you become a Christian, you're coming to this God who loves you so much that he died for you. And let me tell you something. You don't have to be afraid to trust him. You don't have to be afraid to enter into that love. And, and then when you do, you kind of walk away with the only valid fear of all. And that is, that is the fear of God, a healthy fear of the one who loves you so much that if you are consistent and persistent and consistent in your sin, he will discipline you, but it's only to get you back. That's good, huh?